Uh, well, uh, we're continuing uh, this series on Joseph, and actually we're coming to the second half of the series, where the first half we looked at Joseph, and really now it's looking at Joseph's brothers that we're going to be looking at. And as you see the title on the screen there, Joseph's whole life can be summed up in the title, From the Pit to the Palace. Joseph was firstly humiliated by his brothers, but then he was exalted. And we saw how the story of Joseph actually points us to the Lord Jesus, who was also humiliated on the cross, but then he was exalted by his father. You remember uh, what happened. He was loved and favoured, and his uh, father gave him a coat of many colours. His father also gave him, uh, God his father gave him these dreams about how he would be exalted. But his brothers despised him for that, and they threw him into a pit But God was with him, and because he was loved and favoured by God, he was lifted out of the pit, and he was brought into the palace, and he was made the prince of Egypt. He became the prime minister, and so his life went from the pit to the palace. And what we've seen in the story, uh, astonishingly, is that the one whom they despised and rejected became the one on whom all their hopes depend, as he became the prince of Egypt, the prime minister. Uh, So whilst Joseph points us to the story of Jesus, we're going to see in the second half of the series that the story of the brothers actually point more to the story of sinners like us. We're going to see how different they were, his brothers, from Joseph. And uh, I I want us to actually see the stark contrast between uh, Joseph and his brothers as we begin this second half of the series by giving you four snapshots four stories that we actually looked at uh, at the start of the series to remind us of what these brothers, Joseph's brothers, were actually like. And if you remember, the first story comes in chapter 34, where these, um, this tribe, this guy called Shechem, uh, and uh, he was part of the tribe of the Shechemites, um, he actually took their sister Dinah and he, they took advantage of her. And so they came up, uh, Joseph's brothers, with this plot to get revenge. And they sort of, Shechem wanted to enter into this deal uh, with, the, with the brothers. And they said, okay, it's only if you and your men get circumcised. Uh, and so they were like, okay, great, let's do that. They got circumcised. And, um, but it was a ruse, it was a plan, so that while they were still in pain, while they were still sore and were unable to defend themselves, Joseph's brothers, his elder brothers, um, slaughtered them all. He attacked Shechem and all of the men of that town and wiped them out completely. And he took, they took their women, their children, and all of their stuff as plunder. And so Joseph's brothers were viciously violent and murderous Men, that's the first snapshot about Joseph's brothers. The the second one is about the oldest, uh, who's meant to be the one who kind of leads the way, right, and and, and shows the way. Well, Reuben was his name, and he was not um, by any stretch anything like Joseph. Uh, The story we're told uh, in uh, Genesis 38, uh, sorry, Genesis 35, is that um, Reuben, the eldest, while Jacob, his father, was um, away, he decided that he wanted to sleep with his stepmother, he, um, Bilhah, uh, one of Jacob's concubines. And he did. He slept with his stepmother, uh, uh, Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, and, and everyone found out about it. And uh, this brought shame upon himself, and, and it was brazenly defiant of his father. It brought terrible shame on him and on himself. And what we saw is that actually that meant he forfeited his birthright as the firstborn son, which is why we see him looked over and Joseph getting this coat 
of many colours because of Reuben's wickedness with his stepmother. That's the second snapshot. Um, But uh, we see a similar story in another one of the brothers who was uh, Judah, which we looked at in chapter 38. Can you remember that um, he, he, he sort of knew that, that um, slogan, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, he, he went on a work trip, we saw, in, in chapter 38, uh, and he thought that it would be a good idea and be able to get away with sleeping with a prostitute. And so while he was on away on his work trip, that's exactly what Judah did, except it turns out that the woman that he slept with was his daughter-in-law, and he got her pregnant. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the wickedness and the shame and the sexual depravity and out-of-control sexual appetite that Judah and that Reuben had. And that's, that's the third snapshot. But the fourth one, uh, to, to again give us a sense of what these brothers were like, uh, is of course the most famous one. And that is that how they hated and despised this brother Joseph so much, who had this coat of many colours and these dreams given to him by God, that they threw him into a pit and they betrayed him, they sold him for a bag of silver, uh, even though he cried and he uh, pleaded with them for mercy, he, they sold their own brother, their own flesh and blood, as a slave down to Egypt. And so these are the kinds of guys that we're dealing with. Remember what they did next. They, they took his coat and they dipped it in goat's blood, and then they brought it back to Dad, and they said, Oh, Dad, do you recognize this? And this was this sinful deception that they perpetrated against their father, as if to give the impression that Joseph hadn't been, hadn't been forsaken by them, but he'd actually been killed and torn apart by this vicious animal out in the wild. And for year after year, they perpetrated this lie against their father that broke his heart. And so you can see that these men were wicked and they were scoundrels. They couldn't be trusted. They were murderously violent and they were sexually out of control. And so here's the question that we ask at the beginning of the second half of this story, and that is, how on earth could men or women like that ever enter into the blessings of God? How on earth could men like that possibly become the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of the chosen people of God? How on earth could that possibly happen? And not only for them to get um, the blessing of God to come to them, but for the blessing of God to, to go through them to the nations of the world. Because can you remember their, great, their, their grandfather Abraham, God made promises to him in Genesis 12 that uh, not only would he be blessed, but all of the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And remember, Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had these sons that we're talking about today. How on earth is the blessing of God to come to these guys, let alone to come through them to the nations of the world? How on earth can that happen? But if you know how the story ends, you know that that is what happened. And they did become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, friends, what I want you to see this morning is that this is a story of astonishing hope. This is a story of astonishing redemption for people who are murderously violent, and very, very lost, and they get brought into the favor of God, the blessing of God, and become the chosen people of God. And what I want you to see as we go through the second half of this series is that this is a story of extraordinary redemption and great hope. But I want you to see where it begins as we go through Genesis 42 together. And it begins with the awakening of the conscience 
and with conviction of sin. That is what we see in the story. This path of redemption, this path of a complete turnaround from a road to destruction to a road of hope and renewal, it begins with the awakening of the conscience and with the conviction of sin. Now, the timeline of this story is important as we kick in uh, because we heard in um, Genesis 37 verse 2 that Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers cast him into the pit. And so that was the last time his brothers ever saw him when he was 17 years old. But then we're told later on in chapter 41 that he was 30 years old when he became the prime minister. That was last week that he became the prime minister and the prince of Egypt. So that's 13 years. But remember that um, there was a dream and a vision where um, God gave to Pharaoh that there would be seven years of um, good harvests and then there would be seven years of um, famine. And what we get to at the part of uh, this story is that the famine has just started. So that means the seven years are over. So a bit of maths, 13 years for him to become the prince, then another seven years of good harvest, and now we're at the start of the famine. That means it's been 20 years at least since the brothers have seen Joseph and since they committed this crime against him. 20 years. Now, the reason that's important is because I want you to see how they've gotten on over those 20 years. You see, they've been able to lie to themselves and to everyone around them, that everything is okay. For 20 years, they have slipped in over these 20 years into the most dangerous spiritual position I think you could possibly be in where your sins have been forgotten, but they haven't been forgiven. Can you see that that's the situation that they're in in this story? They've moved on as if everything's okay Water under the bridge, everything's okay, they're at peace with themselves. And the reason I think we can be confident that this is the case and this is the state that they're in is because not once over these 20 years have they come to their father and, and, and become clean with him about the truth of what they did to their brother and this lie that has him so sad that thinking that his son is gone. They haven't shown any repentance, they haven't shown any remorse, no confession, no contrition, just moving on as if nothing happened and everything is okay. With their lives, they're essentially saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. They're in a dangerous, very dangerous position where their sins have been forgotten, but they haven't been forgiven. Isn't that so often how we deal, like to deal with our sins? that we, we sort of cover over them with a lie or we try to minimise them and, and then we pretend that it never happened and, and we try to move on to something or, or somewhere else to, to get away where we find ourselves in the same situation where our sins have been forgotten but they haven't been forgiven. It reminds me of King David. Remember, he, he, he lusted after another man's wife, uh, Bathsheba, and he, he took her and then to cover over it all, he... He killed her husband, Uriah, and, and then he wiped his hands of it and moved on. His sins were forgotten, but they weren't forgiven. And I think we see very clearly from God's word that this is the most dangerous spiritual position for you to be in. And so the first step on this story of hope, this story of redemption, is when God in his great mercy steps in 
and intervenes and intercepts into our well-worn patterns of of um, self-deception and self-righteousness and self-justification to awaken our conscience and to convict us of sin. And what I want to do with you as we go through the rest of this story is I want to answer this question. How? How does God awaken the conscience? How does God bring conviction of sin? And as we go through the story, I want you to see that God awakens the conscience in four different ways throughout this story. I hope you'll keep it in front of you, Genesis 42, as we go through the story. I'm taking these again from Colin Smith. Four ways that we see, and I hope you'll see that they're true in the rest of the Bible, and you might come to see that these are true in our own experience as well. Ways in which God awakens the conscience. And the first thing I want you to see in the story is that the first way that God awakens the conscience is by disturbing the peace. By disturbing the peace. Remember, they're going along very fine. Uh, It's all been uh, forgotten and everything is okay. Things are going well. But then what happens at the last verse of chapter 41, you'll see if you look, there was a very severe famine in all of the land. And so because of the famine, it's out of their control. This is a situation that has come upon them. They're going to starve if they don't do something. You can see that God is disturbing the peace. And what they have to do in response to this famine is they have to go and find food. And where's the food? The food is down in Egypt where uh, Joseph has been storing up for these seven years of good harvests, has been storing up this food. And so they go down to Egypt and little do they know, they come face to face with this prince of Egypt, this prime minister, who it turns out is their brother. But they don't recognize him. This is the one whom they despised and rejected. And, and they brought before him, and we see, don't we, the fulfillment of their dreams, where they bow down to him. That was what his dream was all about, bowing down to him. And we see the fulfillment of their dream. It's no surprise that they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years since they last saw each other. Joseph is speaking a different language. We saw how he was speaking through an interpreter, so he's speaking a completely different language. And, of course, he's dressed up in an entirely different garb, the Egyptian garb, completely different to the Jewish garb. I mean, you can see it depicted uh, in the story, the, uh, in the art on the stage, the, the Egyptian garb and, garb, and so it's no surprise that uh, they don't recognize him. But imagine... With these brothers, they come before this most powerful man in Egypt, the Prime Minister, the absolute shock and horror to have this most powerful man accuse them of being spies and then putting them in prison. This most powerful man. Can you imagine the shock? And so what I want you to see that's happening with the brothers is that life has been going very fine. They've been going and moving on from what's happening. There's nothing to see here. We're at peace with ourselves. Life is good. But now suddenly God is disturbing the peace. It's often how it is in the way that God deals with us, to put us on from the path of destruction into the path of redemption. In fact, it reminds me of this parable that Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son. Can you remember? He got his father's inheritance and then he went off to a distant land and he was partying and he was having a good time and it was going really, really well for him. His sins had been forgotten, but they hadn't been forgiven. And then can you remember what happened? What it says, the turning point in the story? Exactly what happens in this story. It says there was a severe famine in the land. 
And Jesus is trying to say to us that the way that God awakens our conscience, the first way, is that he disturbs the peace. You see, it's when this young son, uh, there's a famine, that's when he starts to come to his senses. Actually, things have to get a lot worse where he's feeding pigs and he can't even eat what they're eating for him to come to his senses. And so it's clear in the story, and I think it's clear from the witness of Scripture, that God awakens the conscience, firstly, by disturbing the peace. And so have you had that experience yourselves where things have been going well and you found that your peace has been disturbed? C.S. Lewis talks about how God speaks to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And so could it be that God is trying to get you off the path that you're going, that God is trying to awaken your conscience and convict you of your sin, not so he can bring you down, but so that he can redeem you, even as we'll see he does with the 12 brothers. Well, this is where it begins, disturbing the peace. But the second way that he awakens our conscience is by arousing the memory. You know that saying we have, Um, to take a walk down memory lane. We talk about taking a walk down memory lane. I want you to notice in the story that that's exactly what's happening with these brothers. They're taking a walk down memory lane. Not just metaphorically. No, No, they're literally taking a walk down memory lane because they're walking the exact steps that they walked when they betrayed their brother Joseph. When they threw him into a pit and they sold him off as a slave. It says that when they took him out, they sold him and he went on his way down to Egypt. Well, what's the lane that they're walking down? They're walking down memory lane to Egypt. So can you imagine their memory being aroused, perhaps even as they walk past the pit and the place where they betrayed their brother and going to the place where they know that he's been taken because they would have seen them carrying him off to Egypt. They're taking a walk down memory lane and they're Memories are being refreshed about what it is that they've done these 20 years ago. And we see this memory lane even more distinctly in verse 17, where the brothers who threw Joseph into a pit are now themselves thrown into prison. Can you see the parallel? The brother that they had thrown into a pit now, unbeknownst to them, is the man who's throwing them into prison. And so they are experiencing the very thing that they, their brother experienced at their hands 20 years ago. And I believe that this was arousing their memory of what it is that they'd done. And so surely now all these memories from 20 years ago come flooding back to them in vivid consciousness as they take this walk down memory lane. And sure enough, that's exactly what we see in verse 21, that their conscience, sorry, their memory has been aroused in this great turning point, I think, in the story and this turning point in their lives. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. Can you see their memory being aroused? And then, and then so vividly in these next verses, we saw his anguish when he pleaded with us but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Their memory is aroused. It's all coming back to them. They can hear him pleading and crying. They can see him down in the pit and they can remember what it is that they have done. It all comes back streaming into their consciousness. They thought they could move on. They 
thought that they could just leave it all in the past, but all of a sudden it's all come back to them, all the terrible things that they've done. God awakens the conscience by disturbing the peace, by arousing our memories. And thirdly, I want you to see God awakens the conscience by speaking harshly. You see how harsh Joseph is in the story with his brothers. If you're dubious about this, stick with me. Try it on for size. He speaks harshly with them, doesn't he? I mean, it says it in verse 7. It says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. And that's exactly what they report when they go back to their brother, their father Jacob in verse 30. They say to his, their dad, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and charged us with spying on the land. So what's going on here? Why, why is this in the Bible? Why is Joseph speaking so harshly to his brothers? Where's the lesson? A few weeks ago in my um, Bible study with the uh, uh, teenage uh, boys, um, there's probably two of them, two of them uh, who are in the group here today, um, we started a new study, uh, Bible study, and uh, the very opening, um, I asked them to imagine someone saying the following phrases to you. You lack one thing, you do not see, you do not hear, you do not understand, you're foolish, you're greedy. You invited the wrong people to your party. You're sitting in the wrong chair. You are a dog. Your faith is small. You still don't get it. You just want other people to notice you. And, and then I asked them, how would you react to someone speaking to you like that? And the response, of course, was I think they were a jerk. I think they were a bully and I'd try and get as far away from them as I possibly could. And then I said, well, these are all things that the Lord Jesus says in the Gospels. These are all direct quotes from the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. Why? Why does Joseph speak harshly? Even more so, why does the Lord Jesus speak so harshly? Why does God speak harshly to his children that he loves? I want you to see that really the story of the Bible can be summed up in two parts, the, the law and the gospel. The law tells us what God requires, but the gospel tells us what God provides. And so why does God speak harshly to us? Why does Jesus say in John 16 that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment? Why does hearing from God often hurt well, the answer is very simple, simple. Because it's only until you feel the weight of your sin that you're able to see the glory of the Saviour who saved you from your sin. Can you imagine when, when, when the, the brothers came to Joseph, um, it would have been an amazing surprise for, for Joseph, and uh, can, can you imagine if, if when, he came, when they came, after everything that they'd done and the crimes that they'd committed... If, if Joseph just went, took off the garb and went, hey, guys, it's me. Hey, uh, don't worry about all that stuff you've done. That was, that was fine. Water under the bridge. It's, a, it's all okay. For, just forget about it. Uh, everything's okay. 
Can you imagine the devastating impact that would have had on their souls? To think that they had done nothing wrong? To think that everything was okay and everything was right in the world? Can you imagine what kind of men that they would have become if they thought that everything was okay? Can you imagine how unaffected they would, have, would be by Joseph's forgiveness if they were led to think that they'd never done anything wrong in the first place and everything was okay and it really cost Joseph very little to forgive them for their sins because really they'd really done nothing wrong in the first place. Can you imagine that? Do you see how, why the Lord speaks harshly? Why we need to hear the weight of the law? We've been saying that we need to recognize, they're brothers, they need to recognize their sin before they're able to recognize the Savior. How can you call Jesus Savior if there's nothing that you need saving from? You see, this is why in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that the law is good. You read Romans 7, he says the law is good because it brings us under the weight of our sin and our need before God, which leads us to the Saviour who kept the law in full on our behalf and paid its penalty in full for us when he died on the cross. The law is good. And so this morning, if you find yourself coming under the conviction of sin. Thank God for it. It's preparation to meet the Saviour. Because there's no worse position to be in. To be moving on, moving on as if nothing happened and to have your sins forgotten when they haven't been forgiven. God awakens the conscience by disturbing the peace, by awakening the memory, by speaking harshly, And finally, and most importantly, by showing kindness. Do you see the kindness that Joseph shows to his brothers in the story? Do you know that hymn, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform? Uh, There's a line in it that says, uh, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Well, we kind of see that with Joseph in this story, except um, this frowning providence on on his brothers. Um, Behind it, he's hiding a weeping face. Did you see that? How he weeps after they give this uh, open and frank confession of their sins and what it is that they've done. And by the way, it's a full, in all the gory detail, they're not leaving out any details of what the crimes that they've committed and the sins that they've committed. He hears them, and then in verse 24 it says, he turned away from them and wept. To hear them make that confession, to remember what it is that they put him through, and yet to weep with, I think, gratefulness that they've realised, they've realised what they've done. And I think you see a tenderness there in Joseph's response. But much more so in what he does next in verse 25, where he, in response to this confession, he lavishes on them this extraordinary kindness and these great gifts. In verse 25, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After everything that they've done, after all the pain that he's been through, after all the crimes that they've committed against their father, against each other, and against himself, 
This is, this is how he treats them? This kindness? This lavishing of gifts upon them? It's extraordinary. It's not what you would expect. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he's near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. That's what we see the brothers are doing. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. And the next bit is very familiar, but I want you to see the connection with the first bit because it goes on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, it's really not what you would expect in response to being found out for your crimes, to have kindness lavished upon you. And actually, we we see the same thing in in the story. We we see this logic played out because... um, What happens when they discover this amazing act of kindness? You you know, they're going home and they open their sacks and they find find the money there and they see this this, this kindness that's been done to them and, and they can't interpret it. Do you see what they say in verse 28? At this they lost heart and turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They recognize that God is... God is present here. God is doing something, but they're very confused about what it is because they've just confessed that they deserve to be punished. They've committed all of these crimes, and so they're very confused to discover that they have this kindness being lavished upon them. They can see that God's at work, but they can't understand his ways because, of course, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. It's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's what the Bible says. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Robert Murray McChain has this great quote. He says, it's commonly thought that preaching the holy law is the most awakening truth in the Bible, that by the law the mouth is stopped, And all the world becomes guilty before God. And indeed, I believe this is the most ordinary means which God makes use of. And yet, to me, there's something far more awakening in the sight of the divine Saviour, freely offering himself to everyone in the human race. There's something in that sight that has the power to break the hardest of hearts. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so will you open your heart to God's kindness today? Will you see the kindness that he's lavished on you in the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins? And will you allow him by your spirit to awaken the conscience and to convict of your sin because this is the path of redemption and the path of hope. You know, David 
after his uh, sins with Bathsheba and Uriah were forgotten, God knew that they still weren't forgiven. And in his mercy, he brought about a similar intervention in his life where he sent the prophet Nathan, can you remember, to convict him of what he'd done. Because though his sins were forgotten, they had not been forgiven. And in response to the awakening of his conscience and the conviction of his sin, can you remember he wrote Psalm 51, which ends like this. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so can I invite you to take a few moments in response to what God is saying to you, to confess to him in your heart what it is that you need to confess in the silence of your heart for a few moments, and then I'm going to lead us in a confession and a prayer. invite you to take your blue order of service. Join with me at point eight. The Bible says if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Two Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. So let's make this confession in the in the bowl together at point eight. If you've got the blue order of service, let us confess our sins in penitence and faith. Confident, as we've seen in the story of God's kindness, God's forgiveness together. Merciful God, our maker and our judge, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, I hope you don't stay down in the pit, but you can see how we've been raised up into the palace. I hope you can see the incredible story of redemption that God has wrought in us and through these brothers as they become the 12 tribes of Israel. I hope God, by his spirit, increases you with faith and hope and great confidence, no matter your sin, no matter your struggle. Almighty God, who has promised to forgive all who turn to him with forgiveness, pardon you and set you free from all your sins, strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in eternal life, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing.